The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Episode 10, The Insanity Defense. My name is Peter Berboriak. I'm a forensic psychiatrist. I'm currently employed by the state of North Carolina at Broughton Hospital, where I do uh, half geriatric psychiatry and half forensic psychiatry. Dr. Roboriak, thank you so much for joining us today. I think uh, when people outside the world of forensic psychiatry think about forensic psychiatry, what they often immediately gravitate towards is the insanity defense or the idea of insanity. The, the word insanity isn't really used by other psychiatrists. What is meant by insanity when a forensic person uses it? Well, nowadays, insanity is really a word that has a legal definition having to do with uh, mental illness. That It's a legal term for mental illness, and normally it's also defined. The word itself, however, if we go back a few hundred years, physicians, attorneys, and lay people would use insanity, and they would all know what they were talking about because they were using it in the same sense. For lay people or for clinicians, is the term insanity identical to psychosis? So when we're talking about the use of the word insanity for uh, say criminal defense, uh, it is not the same as psychosis. Uh, It may have a psychotic component, but it it has to do with the mental state of the person at the time of the crime, alleged crime. If there was like a Venn diagram of people with psychosis in one circle and people with insanity in another circle, I guess the, the, the clinical circle would be the psychotic one and the legal circle would be the insanity one, and they would overlap, but they would not be exactly the same. Right. It would have to be a bigger circle of also uh, those people within the Venn diagram would have been charged with a crime. Okay, gotcha. This idea of insanity as a legal defense goes back a long ways. And one of the, the earliest tests that I have heard of for the insanity defense is the wild beast test. But uh, I wonder if there are other tests that predate uh, that idea. Well, the insanity defense, or the idea of the, the insanity defense, stretches all the way back into antiquity. There are biblical references to it. There is uh, reference to it in the Code of Hammurabi, and uh, both the Greeks and Romans had a concept of using this as a way to excuse, or excuse, excuse me, uh, uh, some sort of criminal act. Before uh, the wild beast test, there was something called the right-wrong test. And it wasn't so much as written down, but it was sort of a common sense way of looking at whether either children or folks with mental illness should be blamed for their actions if they did not know the difference between right and wrong, which meant right and wrong in general in, say, knowing the Ten Commandments as opposed to that the specific action, whether knowing the specific action itself was right or wrong. It was just a general sense of whether the person that was being accused knew right from wrong. And then the wild beast test came along. Uh, Tell us about that. The wild beast test came about 
in 1720s. One reason it's important is that it came up it came up when this Thomas II Baron Onslow had an assassination attempt or murder attempt by somebody that lived on his estates. He felt that it might be the beginning of an uprising and so had the trial transcript actually written down and saved. And before that there were insanity there were sanity was involved, but this is the first one that's really was documented. There was the gentleman that you could mad Ned Arnold was the defendant. He shot at Baron Onslow with a shotgun after having a fairly long period of believing that Baron Onslow was persecuting him and bewitching him. Mad Ned Arnold was uh, was arrested and then put on trial. In 1724, a defendant did not get a defense attorney unless they were charged with treason, and Arnold wasn't charged with treason. So as his own, uh, you know, defending himself, uh, apparently he didn't do a great job. There were witnesses that could have been called to talk about his mental illness that weren't called, and uh, he was convicted and sentenced to death. But the judge Judge Tracy set a the wild beast test a specific way the rule for how he wanted his definition or criteria would be for insanity. The quote is a man must be totally deprived of his understanding and memory so as not to know what he is doing, no more than an infant, a brute, or a wild beast. The testimony that uh, Arnold had been able to purchase ammunition for his shotgun and had, you know, been able to actually operate it was more than you would expect from an infant, a brute, or a wild beast. Most people that would fall within this definition don't are so disorganized that they would not actually be able to commit a crime. That would be considered a very high bar for someone to be considered meeting the test, uh, an infant, a brute, or a wild beast. That's correct. It's uh, probably the highest bar. Okay. Are, are there any other standards uh, from the 1720s up to the 1840s uh, in England or anywhere else that we should be aware of? Another landmark test was called Rex v. Hadfield, which occurred in 1800, so a little less than 80 years after the Arnold decision. Hadfield was a veteran of the British Army that had been sent to France. He was wounded in and had a significant head injury. Part of his skull was missing, and part of the evidence presented was having a jury examine his brain tissue through the hole in his head. Wow. His act was to uh, attempt to assassinate the reigning monarch, who was George III at the time. He was under delusion that his uh, mission was to save the world. He would have to die in order to save the world, and he could not kill himself because obviously that was a sin and that would uh, that would not work for him to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And so knowing that if he tried to assassinate the king, in, in theory, or at least in, uh, he wasn't actually trying to assassinate the king, but he did fire a pistol at the king, that, uh, that he would then be executed and then he could fulfill his destiny without committing suicide. But after he was arrested, because he was charged with treason, he actually had a defense attorney. His defense attorney was able to argue against the wild beast test. He argued that that Hadfield should be excused because his act was a, quote, offspring of a delusion. The quote that the attorney Erskine made was, no such man that's ever existed in the world. Reason is not driven from receipt, but distraction sits down upon it along with her. 
to say that, which would explain why Hadfield could do some things that weren't insane uh, to the common person, but could also still be insane. And the jury agreed, and he was acquitted. In 1800, if you were acquitted, he was the first, technically the first person acquitted for by reason of insanity. There wasn't any disposition for those folks. So in theory, he should have just been released because he was not guilty, but the king was not pleased to do something like that. So uh, the, the first official NGRI acquittal with automatic hospitalization was put into place for Hadfield, and he was uh, hospitalized at Bethlehem Hospital, commonly known as Bedlam Hospital. We've mentioned the 1840s a couple of times. I think that of all individual cases that have been memorialized in psychiatry, there are very few that are held so uh, with such high importance as the uh, Daniel McNaughton case. I, I know you've, you've shared this case with me and with others countless times over your career, but if I could implore you to, uh, to tell us about the McNaughton case and uh, why it's so significant. The standards in the McNaughton case was pretty much close to what was used in the Hadfield case, which was, again, if you look at the wild beast as being a very difficult test, test that was used in Hadfield was really easier from the defendant's point of view to establish. He was a Scottish woodturner. He uh, apparently became delusional and felt that the Tory party, which was the party in power, was persecuting him. And he went to the extent of actually leaving Scotland and leaving, leaving Great Britain completely and moving to France. But then his delusions continued. And so he was being persecuted in France. And he came back. The leader of the Tory party was uh, the prime minister, Robert Peel. And uh, McNaughton decided that the way to end the persecution would be to kill Robert Peel. The problem was, and you can imagine in the 1840s and all the period before that, that, you know, without having the media, even even newspapers would have engravings. But how would you know what anybody looked like? You could know what the king or queen looked like because they would be on coins. And even then, I'm not sure you would well recognize them. He didn't actually know what Robert Peel looked like. Robert Peel's secretary, in a case of mistaken identity, he believed the secretary was, in fact, the prime minister. And so he shot and killed the secretary. He shot and killed the secretary in view of a police officer, and he was immediately arrested. He had a lot of money in his possession. It turns out that there was some thought about with the conspiracy theory that, in fact, he had been paid to do the assassination. Or, you know, why would this guy should turn of all this money? It does turn out that he was a very frugal and successful uh, landlord in Scotland. So this was actually money he had earned. He was able to hire a defense attorney. Again, he, he hired a really good defense attorney who used the Hadfield standard basically to argue that he was not criminally responsible. The judge pretty much directed the jury to find him not guilty by reason of insanity. Well, it caused sort of an uproar, which led to what is the McNaughton test, which is precipitated or triggered by the McNaughton decision, but was not actually used in the McNaughton case. Queen Victoria had been a victim assassination attempt, I believe, which she had a number, I believe eight assassination attempts throughout her career. She had an assassination attempt where the uh, assassin ended up being found not guilty by reason of insanity. 
And she sort of felt that could just plead injure eye and get off that people were getting away with it and where she was a target. So she convened the law lords, which is the highest legal minds and judges within the House of Lords, and asked a set of questions that had to do with what should be the insanity defense. So this is the first higher court decision with the law lords in Parliament being essentially at the level of a Supreme Court. Chief Justice Tyndall, the judge in the case, actually ended up reversing himself. The bottom line that was in 1843, the McNaughton Rule was born. And the McNaughton Rule states that a person is not criminally responsible, quote, at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as to not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he knew it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong, which is all one sentence, but they like doing that in the 19th century. <laughs> this was adopted you know, at Great Britain because it was, again, now the standard there. But it also made it across uh, the ocean because the American uh, justice system was still very much influenced by decisions that were happening in British courts. You can consider this rule to be in terms of difficulty for defendant between the standard delusional kind of standard that was used in, in Hadfield and also in McNaughton's, in McNaughton's trial itself. And the wild beast test on the other side being the most difficult. This is a strictly cognitive standard of a person needing to know a certain knowledge. And if one knew that, whether one was psychotic or not, and mentally ill or not, you would be considered criminally responsible. What's remarkable to me is that in some form or another, the McNaughton rule has remained part of English common law and the American judicial system since 1843. There's a, another piece that is sometimes added to the McNaughton rule, uh, and I've heard it described either as irresistible impulse. Sometimes I've heard it called uh, more colloquially uh, policeman at the elbow test. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You're talking about the irresistible impulse test, which was something that was actually, again, originated in English courts. And essentially, the irresistible impulse test is another arm that is attached to the, would be attached to the McNaughton rule, which was that the defendant knew what they were doing was wrong, but was unable to stop themselves from doing it. The test for it was the policeman at the elbow test is would this person still have committed the crime if the police officer was right there to arrest them with the logic being that anybody that could control themselves would not do that in the presence of police. A number of states adopted irresistible impulse as a test. Yeah, in states that have irresistible impulse, does it stand alone or is it something that's added to the McNaughton standard? It is something that's been added. Again, the McNaughton standard says the person needs to know the wrongfulness of their actions, and then the irresistible impulse test sort of soften that a little bit, but if they did know that their action, you know, the wrongfulness of their actions, and they still acted because they were powerless to stop themselves, then they should be acquitted based on insanity. So the problem is the irresistible impulse test is a little bit difficult to actually conceptualize. There's a quote from uh, Lauren Roth, who was a forensic psychiatrist uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, who said the difference between a impulse not resisted and an irresistible impulse is, is uh, as clear as a line between twilight and dusk. Something happens in the District of Columbia 
in the 1950s. Uh, there's a case, I believe it was uh, called Durham v. U.S. Tell us about that case and, uh, and the so-called product rule. This rule was actually adopted in New Hampshire and was called the New Hampshire test. Uh, we had this replacement McNaughton rule and was still law. Uh, started in 1869 was the first case that were, was promulgated by the Supreme Court in New Hampshire and basically used the term that a person is not responsible for the crime with the offspring or product of mental disease and a defect. In 1954, uh, we had District of Columbia. Circuit Court Appeals was very influential. It was sort of like the cradle of Supreme Court judges at that time. And the chief judge for the Circuit Court, the uh, federal Circuit Court was Judge David Bazelon. He was somebody who was very excited about advances in psychiatry. Uh, he had actually was undergoing psychoanalysis, and there was this thought that using Freudian concepts and, and other advances that the McNaughton Rule was really outdated and unfair, and we needed to come up with another standard that reflected the knowledge we had about psychology and mental illness in 1954. So uh, the Circuit Court of Appeals for District of Columbia was the Court of Appeals that covered St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. And uh, it was a case of Durham versus the United States where the case itself wasn't as significant as Judge Bazelon writing decision where he reviewed the entire history of the insanity defense and then argued uh, argued for basically the product tests or the the New Hampshire test was called the Durham rule after the case. The states did not have to adopt the Durham rule. Of course, New Hampshire already had the, had the Durham rule. The only other major jurisdiction was the U.S. Virgin Islands that also adopted the Durham rule. But the Durham rule ended up being something that was fairly easy for defendants to show because there was no definition of mental illness. And there's a famous story that the psychiatric staff at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, you know, one weekend met uh, to decide whether antisocial personality disorder was a mental illness. They decided that it was. So you had all these antisocial folks without any other mental illness being found in GRI based on the Durham rule. So it sounds like on the very far end of the spectrum, in terms of inclusion of mental disorders and their severity, the Durham rule would be the most inclusive, and on the very other end of the spectrum would be something like the wild beast test. These other st earlier standards didn't necessarily have to do with the severity of the mental illness directly, but by making the standard so tough, of course, only people that would meet it would have a severe mental illness. Again, this uh, the idea of personality disorders and neuroses was something that was a 20th century phenomenon. And those concepts weren't around in the 19th or 18th century really to be considered. But by the 1950s, they definitely were. And this was the result. I should also note that Judge Bazelon also felt it was fair to change the burden of proof from what usually was on the defense of the prosecution. A defendant would be considered sane, but in this case, if there's evidence that the, that the defendant was insane, the government had to prove that the defendant was sane instead of the defendant having to prove they were insane. And whoever has the burden of proof has the harder job.
Now, since the Durham rule, there have been multiple attempts to reform the insanity defense in the United States. One of them that I'm aware of is the American Law Institute uh, Model Penal Code. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? This is something that also happened in the 1950s. Uh, the American Law Institute is a group of learned attorneys um, who create model laws. And we, you've heard the called model penal code. They, they decide what they feel nationally would be the most appropriate law. They cre- write the language and then states will can consider it. You know, they can take the model, modify the model, or reject the model. I mean, mean, there is no, there is, uh, they have no power to impose the model on anybody, but is a model. The ALI test took the McNaughton rule plus irresistible impulse and softened the language a little bit. The test is a person is not responsible for his criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacks substantial capacity to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. So the criminality part, uh, appreciates the criminality comes from the Minot rule, the conform his conduct to the requirements of the law uh, comes from irresistible impulse. There's another clause though that says the terms mental disease or defect do not include an abnormality manifested by repeated criminal or otherwise antisocial conduct to get around the problem with the Durham rule. The ALI test proved to be very popular and uh, was adopted in many states in the country. I think it might have technically actually been adopted in more states than uh, the number of states that kept the uh, McNaughton rule. So another uh, another reform that seemed to happen had to do with uh, the Hinckley situation. Can you tell us about uh, John Hinckley and who he was and, and what he has to do with the insanity defense. John Hinckley uh, attempted to assassinate President Reagan and uh, ended up again being arrested and going to trial in 1982 in the case of the United States v. Hinckley. At that point, he was actually tried under a standard. It was basically the ALI standard with the burden being on the prosecution to prove sanity if the issue of the issue of insanity was raised by the defense. Uh, John Hinckley had uh, was son of a oil company father and had a rich family and was able to actually put on a very strong defense. Again, in this case, the government wasn't able to prove he was sane. If at the time there was ideas that he was delusional, he had shot President Reagan in order to press the actress Jodie Foster, and that there were experts testifying that he was psychotic and uh, had uh, CTs and that that was consistent or diagnostic even of schizophrenia. The problem was that once he was found not guilty of reason insanity, there was a big outcry in the public and in Congress. Again, this is somewhat similar to the to the impact that the McNaughton case had on Green Victoria. In response to that case, the majority of states revised their sanity defenses. It also resulted in a change in the federal standard. Again, all the Bazelon things and ALI standard was basically, they were still, there was still some basis in the ALI standard, but the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 uh, set a standard that is affirmative defense to a prosecution under any federal statute that at the time of the commission of the act constituting the offense, defendant as a result of severe mental illness or defect was unable to appreciate the nature and quality or wrongfulness of the acts. 
the word appreciate, which we didn't talk about when we talked about the ALI standard, is, I guess, softer compared to no. So the McNaughton rule says they have to know the uh, nature, quality, or wrongfulness of their uh, acts. The appreciate brings in more of a psychological component, and what folks usually write about is that it's an effective component that's not only do you know something, but you can't believe it. So they did keep that part, which was in the ALI, and got rid of the uh, section that could be construed as irresistible impulse. And then also, again, shifted the burden of proof to the defendant to prove, again, at trial that they were insane rather than having the government having to prove they were sane. And that's what's called an affirmative defense? Yes. An affirmative defense meaning basically that it's the burden that and normally, um, in our legal system, the defendant is presumed to be not guilty and also again, presumed to be sane. An affirmative defense means that in a non-insanity trial, the uh, government has to prove or a state has to prove, the prosecution has to prove that the person committed this crime, is guilty of this crime. In insanity, under it's the affirmative defense goes to the defendant and defense team to prove that the person was insane. I've heard of some variations on the insanity defense. Uh, one of them, I wonder if it's in response to Hinckley or may have predated it, is uh, guilty but mentally ill. So that was a development that was started, I believe, in Michigan. In fact, predated Hinckley, but Hinckley sort of gave it some impetus. And the idea was that juries would be unwilling to give defendants uh, acquit them uh, due to insanity, but that insanity could be actually acknowledged as being a component in their crime, and there would be a special verdict that would acknowledge that there was mental illness involved and also would then direct them into treatment, though they would still be punished for the offense that was called guilty but mentally ill. It turned out, though, uh, this seemed to be very popular, and a number of states adapted it. And it was also uh, something that I think the defense bar originally felt was like a good development, and they were willing to have their, you know, they facilitated having their clients plead guilty but mentally ill. The problem was that essentially being found guilty but mentally ill, the guilty part was the was the ruling or most important part of that that phrase, and the person would end up receiving sentences that were they would have gotten if they had not pled guilty but mentally ill. And then in some places, the mental health treatment that they received was really below what you would have expected that someone with a special verdict, that the treatment really wasn't there or was inadequate. We talked basically about the evolution of the insanity defense and not about what a forensic psychiatrist actually does. Right. An evaluation of criminal responsibility or mental state at the time of the offense is something that forensic psychiatrists are called upon to do. And uh, and it is, one sense, it's distinguished from regular clinical evaluations by a change in the client, I guess would maybe client isn't the best word for that, but uh, forensic psychiatrists have a duty to the court as opposed to have a duty to their patients. And the, the main duty is to their patients and things like confidentiality arise from that duty. Forensic psychiatrists aren't there on behalf of the defendant, even if they're defense psychiatrists or defense, uh, defense has hired them. They're there to serve the court and also to serve the truth. And the truth may be harmful 
to the defendant. And again, as physicians, we are required uh, not to harm our patients and not to do harm to our patients. And so at least it's been argued that forensic practice could be considered outside the practice of medicine. Most states have decided it is the practice of medicine. But anyways, there is this sort of, in any forensic evaluation, there's this difference. So um, the other thing I would say is that an insanity evaluation starts or at least include a good clinical evaluation as well. A good forensic psychiatrist has good clinical skills. There are things that are specifically forensic skills, but a person with good forensic skills and bad clinical skills makes a bad forensic psychiatrist. The other thing about specific to conducting a evaluation of criminal responsibility is that the focus is on the evidence of what the mental state of the person was at the time of the alleged offense. That means doing a retrospective look at whatever evidence is available, which would include interviewing the defendant about what was happening, what their mental state was, uh, what their explanation, if they have one, for the crime. The other important part is uh, looking at collateral information, which is information provided by others, which could be law enforcement, past clinicians, past psychiatric records, past medical records, witness statements. I've had forensic psychiatrists that have gone to crime scenes in order to get a better understanding of how that might contribute to the mental status of a person. So it's integrating all that information, which sometimes can be contradictory and then coming up with an opinion based on the standard. Again, North Carolina would be like non-standard, but in other states, it would be whatever standard is currently used. The important part is writing a report and writing a report that the court can use. At times, it also means testifying about one's opinion in court as well and in an adversarial environment. Pleasant mental status may or may not be related to mental status at the time of the crime, and a way to organize a report part that sort of reflects this reality would be to list diagnoses that were present and what was going on at the time of the crime, and then list another set of what would be the present state of the person, because they may well have been treated. Now, you are an expert in many domains. Uh, My understanding is that you have degrees from different institutions, and you have allegiances that cross lines in North Carolina. You've been faculty both at Duke and at UNC. And so I'll ask you the question that I I asked Dr. Recor as well in the Competence to Stand Trial episode. What happens when Duke and UNC play each other in basketball? I have a PhD in history, which I received from Duke. I have a medical degree, which I received from Duke. And I also ended up doing my psychiatry residency at Duke. And technically, the fellowship was also a Duke program. And at that point, I had pretty much established my allegiance to the Blue Devils. Since then, I have been directed the UNC Forensic Psychiatry Residency, also known as a fellowship. It is sometimes lonely being a Duke fan in a sea of Carolina blue. I can only imagine. But anyways, Duke. Sounds good. Well, Dr. Barbariak, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, spending uh, time explaining this critical topic. It was my pleasure. Hopefully folks can learn something.